Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of What's the Obsession With? Today, we're going to be talking about what's the obsession with serial killers. So who is the special guest today? We have a special guest. This is uh, Doi Broad. She's also, uh, she has been in the writer's room of several TV shows, and she also has a uh, very special connection to serial killers. So Zoe, do you want to talk just a little bit about the TV shows that you've been a part of, uh, and also um, about your serial killer pen pal? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on this show. I'm excited to be here and uh, get to talk about serial killers. Really one of my favorite things to talk about, really, of all time. Um... And I have been, I've been a part of several writer's rooms now. I worked in the writer's room on the Pretty Little Liars spinoff, The Perfectionist. I just was in this writer's room for an untitled HBO Showtime Lakers show, which should be super cool. It should be coming out within the next year or so. And then, of course, I was in the Shadowhunters writer's room for three years, and I wrote the episode of season three, A Kiss from a Rose. And, um... And the rumors are true. I am fascinated with serial killers. And I do have a serial killer pen pal, the Trailside Killer, who I visited. I had a contact visit with on San Quentin's death row. It wasn't sexy. It sounds a little sexy. It wasn't sexy. <laughs> yes, a contact, a contact visit. Um, so what we're going to try and get uh, into during this episode is we're going to try to get to the bottom of what is the draw about content about serial killers. So uh, we're going to try and not spend too much time talking about the mindset of serial killers, but I do want to give just a little bit of a disclaimer that there's a possibility that we, mil we may talk about some serious topics and serious subject matter. Uh, if things like gore and uh, people being murdered is something that you don't want to hear about, uh, that is probably going to come up in this conversation, but we are going to try and keep it uh, more focused on the type of media that is produced around these crimes rather than the crimes themselves. <clears throat> but I just wanted to give a little bit of a disclaimer. disclaimer at a time because most of our episodes tend to be, you know, uh, the aliens episode, for example, did not get this deep. Uh, it got a little goofy. It got um, a little goofy. This may not get goofy. We don't know yet quite yet. But so I want to, to, to first kind of dive right into, uh, what do we think the draw is about content about serial killers? And, uh, Zoe, you were writing a screenplay and that is why you have a serial killer pen pal. What was your draw in writing that? And uh, why, why, why did you even want to do something like that? Well, I have always been a little bit fascinated with serial killers. And I think I have a couple of theories of my own. I'm curious to hear your theories. But I think for me, the reason why people are so fascinated with serial killers are twofold. The first is, who would do such a thing? Like, I don't know about you guys, but I never have I ever wanted to murder someone. Like, it, it hasn't crossed my mind. And so I think the fact that it's a hu that serial killer is a human, but it's a human who's doing something that is so different from something that you or I could possibly fathom doing, I think that's really interesting from a psychological point of view. And I also think, I know I really like scary stories. You guys obviously had an entire episode about scary stories, but I think there's something very exciting about scary stories, about being scared, about monsters, and for me, I think, sort of like Pete said in the Scary Stories episode, I don't scare so easily, but one thing that really scares me is serial killers because they're a monster that could actually get you. Like, realistically, probably zombies aren't going to happen. Who knows? We have murder hornets now. Anything is possible. But I think, realistically, it's unlikely that we're going to find ourselves in the midst of Night of the Living Dead. But a serial killer actually is more plausible. It's statistically not likely that you or I would be murdered by a serial killer, but we could imagine it happening. And I think that for me makes them the scariest monsters really of all time. And I'm curious if what you guys think, but I, I have always wondered, are women more obsessed with serial killers than men? Because women, I know as a woman, I feel more vulnerable to this possibility. And I wonder, do men, I don't, I don't know, do men feel as vulnerable? Are they as fascinated by serial killers? I'm not sure. Statistically, yes. So I'll get into that later. But statistically speaking, yes, uh, women are more um, 
not too overused, but obsessed or into or interested in the whole topic of serial killers and true crime in general. Um, and I'll, I'll pop in more info about that later. But that is true. Like, that's something that a lot of people picked up on and then people checked. And it's true. I think it's interesting because... I definitely, and I'm a runner and I do a lot of running and I don't like to think of myself as vulnerable or as someone who is afraid of a lot of things, but I think there is a certain element, especially to being a woman in a city, but really to being a woman anywhere where you have to have just like by nature of being practical, a feeling of like, I don't know, I'm five, five. I know I feel physically smaller than any man who could come and attack me. By the way, not to say that there aren't female serial killers, but typically they kill like their husbands. There's a lot of like black widow type female serial killers, whereas I feel like the serial killer you see that's like assaulting random joggers is usually a man. So I think that for me is what's scary is like it could, it could happen to anyone. I wanted to bring this up later, but I kind of think this actually might be a natural segue. Um, Adri, you have, uh, I'd love to go into a bit about the story that you told um, in a recent article that we did about um, you had a, a teacher in your class that said the quote about, you know, how, how we're all capable of murder. <clears throat> yeah, um, that happened when I was in high school. I think I was a sophomore, but I have really vague memories about high school, so I'm not sure. Um, and this teacher um, is the reason I studied psychology. So she obviously had an impact by saying that to a very vulnerable, like a very impressionable class of teenagers. Um, but you have to picture her. Like, first you have to picture her. She's this like retired woman with a doctorate who is wearing a muumuu or something very comfy, like pajama-y to school every day. So she looks like a grandma and she acts like a grandma and she like fed us cookies all the time. So she's like, she's a grandma. But the first day of class in psychology, like I think it was, I don't know if it was AP psychology or something. And she said, you have to remember all of the time that every single one of us is an animal capable of murder, including myself. And you're just looking at her and she's like sweet little granny telling you that she's an animal capable of murder. And I think that just really stuck with me. Um, but she's she's right. She was talking about survival instinct. Um, for the most part, but, you know, then there's, you know, disturbances. So do you, do you think that part of that is, so there's the fear of serial killers, like feeling vulnerable, like, like when you go jogging or, or, or things like that, that, that I think could make people be fascinated with them. But I think it's also maybe looking at what we are also internally capable of um and what we think it's it's i think it's just because it's interesting because i think while while there is this true crime obsession that's going on right now and i know that we have some some research that's going to be in our notes about that i think you know why we wanted to make this conversation really focus on serial killers is that um they just it's such a thing like so much media is spent focusing on this specific archetype of serial killer and it's something about how it's like they seem sane that's the thing i think it's that it's that they seem normal a lot of the time. And I think uh, this might be a good time to think to kind of delve into some of our favorite serial killers, both fictional and 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 uh, and real, to talk kind of about well, what we think kind of the, the overarching themes are. I mean, I think someone like Ted Bundy, who was like, seemed just like a normal, charming guy, uh, but was super not, <laughs> you know, and the same with um, uh, Andrew Kananen, uh from American Crime Story and Versace, um, the idea that he for all intents and purposes, seemed just like a normal person that had this thing that he was capable of that was um, bananas. <laughs> I don't know. Interestingly, I almost feel like that's um, one of the misconceptions about serial killers is that they seem normal and they blend into society. And I think even Ted Bundy, like Ted Bundy had this weird thing where he happened to be fairly physically attractive um, really like as serial killers go or in general, as indicated by the fact that he was played by Zac Efron recently. Um, but I think actually from my research on serial killers and from my, um, my pen pal, the Trailside killer in particular, at least the serial killers I've researched or experienced really don't fit into society that well. And that comes into 
that plays into a lot of their like need to kill is this feeling of need for power or need to be in control of a situation. Um, but I think that is part of why Ted Bundy was so interesting to people is he wasn't, he could, I don't know. I mean, I think Zac Efron didn't, did you guys see the, um, I'm going to butcher the title of this movie, extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. Did you guys see it? I did not watch it just because uh, I, I it was on my list, but I have not seen it yet. Um, but I know. No, I've seen it. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's a true state. True story, by the way. I actually saw it twice because I had ankle surgery this winter and I was on like a pretty high dose of Vicodin as a pain med. And so I watched it when I was on Vicodin and being on Vicodin is like a black hole. Like I remember nothing. So I watched it again. So I watched it once and then I put it on again, I guess, a couple days later, like having not remembered that I watched this movie. Anyway, I spent way too much time hanging out with Zac Efron as Ted Bundy. But I think even he kind of captures that like Ted Bundy, he was handsome and he like could be charming, but there was a little something about him that just wasn't quite was just like a hair off. I don't know, AJ, if you felt that too, watching the movie and in that portrayal of Ted Bundy. Yes, it was, um, it was just a little something off. Um, and we can't really, I mean, I can't really tell because of the generation that we're a part of, because we weren't there for when all of this was on TV, on the trial and everything. If that was, I didn't really study footage of him, so I don't know if that's a real thing. Or if he was just trying to play that up to differentiate him or foreshadow the kind of person that he truly was, or if he was just passing. I had read normal. that about I had read that about Ted Bundy. Was that like he was pretty awkward and like as a little kid, he didn't have a lot of friends. He really didn't fit in. And it was really as he matured sexually and became a fairly good looking man that he was able certainly at least with women, to code as um, someone who was able to fit in. But I think, I know with my, uh, with my serial killer, quote-unquote, with the serial killer who I, um, who I interviewed, he had a terrible stutter, a really, really, really bad stutter. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't, he won't admit to having murdered a bunch of women, but he pretty conclusively has. Um, and it sort of suggested, and from my research, I would suggest that a lot of it was like he couldn't get a woman to hang out with him unless he was putting her in this power dynamic where he was taking her life, unfortunately. Uh, that's kind of interesting. I think you we talked a bit in, in the, the pre-show about this pre-show, like it was something fancy, but we talked a bit uh, kind of previously about... Um, and and I think hopefully this can segue into our talking about, I really would love to talk about Barry, uh, HBO's Barry, because I kind of want to, I want to get all of our weighing in on if we think he's a serial killer. One, he's a hitman, he's being hired, but he has also killed several times. But the show doesn't quite treat him like that. It treats him pretty um, sympathetically in some ways. But anyways, we're going to table that and uh, let's come back to it. But you mentioned something about how... Um, you know, I felt like in those instances, I was giving an example about how in each of those times that Barry on, on the TV show had, had killed, it was he sort of felt he was backed into a corner and he had to. And you mentioned that you thought that perhaps, you know, your quote unquote, your, your serial killer also probably felt that he had to. That I think it's it's trying to get to the bottom of, of um like, why? Why would you feel like you have to, to murder? Like, why do you think, like, why is that an option to you? Well, I think, Brie, you had touched on, and I know you haven't yet read the definition of a serial killer, but we had been talking about it earlier. And I think that cooling off period is really key in the definition of a serial killer. I don't know. Do you want to read the definition? I feel like I do. I do. I do. Be, let me yeah. let me kind of go through that. I, I we kind of skipped around a little bit on our on our thing, but I think like let's just like bring this back. So the thing about a serial killer is it's not just that you're killing multiple people. It's that. Um, according to the FBI, it's a serial killer who commits at least three murders over a course over over more than a month period with an emotional cooling off period in between. 
So that leaves a lot of gray area, I think is kind of an interesting way to look at it. But so it's basically just the idea that you commit multiple, multiple murders over the course of more than a month. Um, when you then apply that to a lot of different murders, I think as, again, we were talking earlier, there are a lot of people who, you know, um, you know, working with mob or working with gangs or things like that, they probably may fit that explanation. Technically, they have killed multiple people over the course of more than than uh, a month with a cooling off period. But we don't necessarily refer to them as serial killers. That's yeah, that's really interesting. Like I know I feel like the cooling off periods, at least from what I've heard about them, they can be like, interestingly, the trail side killer, David Carpenter, who's this fellow who I met, um, his first few murders were actually like almost a year apart. And then I think the the typical pattern for a serial killer is slowly but surely the, the cooling off period gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And then when you hear about like sadistic killings and people who are doing all sorts of sorts of messed up sexual acts, oftentimes also killings and murders get increasingly more sadistic in addition to increasingly more frequent. And that's the killer quote unquote needing like something else, like he's no longer or she is no longer satisfied from the pure act of the kill. AJ would probably know more about this since I know you're um, you're deeper in the psychology than I am. Right. And I think that the, the FBI often puts these benchmarks. Um, if you watched Mindhunters. Yes, uh, I read the book, is, too, actually. Yeah, I'm sure you did as, as research. Um, the, the way they would interview these men and study the patterns and they started to see how much of a wide spectrum it was and how there was organized and disorganized. And so I think anything the FBI states as a definition is very benchmarky. Um, I, I think it's to cover the large swath of possibilities in this style of crime, but to get out of, I think, the psychology of the, the killers themselves and more into the psychology of why people care so much or are not care, um, but are so interested in the specifics. Um, I think it goes a little bit with the, the aspect of vulnerability that you were talking about before, is that um, people not only want to know how to avoid being a victim, but they want to avoid becoming a killer. And they want to know every detail of why and how this person could get to this place where they do this. Um, in order to set themselves apart from it and be like, oh, this person is weird or different in these ways. Um, Or I have these similar traits to this person and that is something I should keep an eye on. So it's people kind of like taking their cues from what they learn about these crimes um, in order to both avoid becoming a victim of people like this, but also to some extent to avoid becoming people like this. Because like I said before, everybody has that capability, um, statistically speaking, um, to to murder somebody. But serial killers specifically have this like pleasure aspect to it for the most part, or this compulsion aspect like you were talking about. And that's, I think, what people want to know more about. Um, want to know about the disordered part of it so they can set themselves apart. I think something also that was interesting about Ted Bundy is for a really long time, um, like nobody knew. He was just murdering people. And then, you know, as his like side gig, his murder was his side hustle. And then in his day-to-day life, he was living with his girlfriend. He was sort of almost a pseudo parent to his girlfriend's child he was a law student. And I think that's another thing that's sort of messed up and exciting to our brains about serial killers is that in theory, less so these days, but anyone could be one. Um, like the Golden State Killer who just got caught recently had been living his life for like 50 years murdering people and nobody knew. He was just tucked away, kind of hidden in plain sight. Right, and I think that's something that the media really started playing up around the 70s and 80s. Um, I'm just guesstimating, that's a huge swath of time. But, but they really started playing that up because it's sold a lot. Because if they can tell you, oh, people like this can be your neighbor, or they can be your pastor, or they can be anybody in your community. And um, they they love to use the term 
this man was a pillar of his community. So anybody that's upstanding or a family man. So they really make you suspect of everybody. And that kind of paranoia really sells. And what journalism wants to do, some types of journalism is just sell more papers or get more viewers. And that kind of like really alarmist information really sells. But the reality is, like you were saying, they're not that average. There's something off about them that doesn't let them integrate into society. Um, for the most part. Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, at least to me, there's something really psychologically interesting about like, because I mean, I mean, it's interesting, anyone could kill, but probably for you or I to kill, there would require some major incident to push us over the edge, whether it was like a Katniss Everdeen Hunger Games sort of situation or um, like a Walking Dead everyone, every man for himself situation. Um, but for some reason, there is something about a serial killer in their brain where they need killing or they feel okay with killing. And I think we want to know, like, what is it that creates that, that makes someone do that in some way? Many very sympathetic depictions of serial killers, like shockingly amount. I would say, I, I mean, and I'm pulling this out of completely nowhere. Uh, I feel like there are probably more sympathetic depictions of serial killers than there are of just regular killers. Like, like the the amount of of you know, you have things like Dexter or like American Psycho or Barry. I still think Barry's a serial killer. I'm putting that out there. Uh, but things that really uh, like take time really or like Hannibal Hannibal really taking time to like help you get into their mindset of the serial killer I think for whatever reason we spend a lot of time trying very hard to get into that mindset of a serial killer um or at least try and unpack that and figure out what it's about it's interesting I'm curious do you feel like American Psycho is a sympathetic take on a serial killer or do you think it's it's not that I think that he's sympathetic, but I think that it's they spend time getting into his psyche. I think that's the thing. It's not just that it's like, this is good and actually great that he does this, right? It's, it's, it's not that I think that every time we have depictions of serial killers that do that, but it's that they just spend so much time sort of like letting us get really comfy with like their headspace. And I just think that that's and a lot of time. I mean, I think even, even in Silence of the Lambs, like... I don't think you're meant to think Hannibal is good, actually. Oh, I actually do. And here's why. I was talking to my boyfriend about this the other day because this is what I talked to my boyfriend about just in my free time, serial killers. Um, so this is why I think we're meant to like Hannibal Lecter is when we first meet him, Clarice Starling, who, by the way, I think Clarice Starling is the best thing to happen to modern storytelling I think we haven't seen a female protagonist like Clarice Starling in over 25 years since Silence of the Lambs came out. I am hoping in my serial killer screenplay to depict, you know, I'm not going to say I'm trying to depict Clarice Starling. I would love to depict something close to that. Um, but anyway, I think that the really interesting thing about Hannibal Lecter is that the first time we meet him, Clarice Starling walks into this prison and the other prisoners are disgusting. They are, she's scared about seeing Hannibal Lecter, but when she first meets him, he's not the scariest part at all of that scene. And in fact, it's, um, I think his name is Miggs, who masturbates in his cell and ejaculates onto Clarice. And it's horrifying. Do you guys know what scene I'm talking about? Where he flings his cum onto her. Sorry to be graphic. Um, and it's awful. Oh my gosh, it's grotesque and terrifying. And she runs out of there. And it's Hannibal Lecter who saves her. He says, Clarice, come back. And she comes back and she gets situated in front of Hannibal Lecter's cell. Um, and then you'll remember that later, that guy, who I think is named Miggs, dies, quote unquote, by swallowing his own tongue, whatever that means. And we're meant to believe that Hannibal Lecter somehow figured out a way to murder this man who was so vile to Clarice Starling. And I think, I don't know, for me, in its weird, messed up serial killer way, that was kind of gallant of him. Um... Like that was, he was saving her from an even more revolting, horrific threat. And in that way, I was kind of on board with Hannibal Lecter right away. I was like, okay, he's helping our girl Clarice out. That's awesome. Yeah, I think Hannibal is um, is going off kind of the gentleman killer thing that 
probably started with Jack the Ripper and is kind of the idea of serial killers that we have is somebody who is fancy and intelligent most of all and refined and has these very complex ideas about why they're doing what they're doing um and how they're going to go about it and that's just not generally true <laughs> um there's very few serial killers that follow that pattern but it's the one we locked onto and they they become they become like anti-heroes I know that my my serial killer, the Trailside Killer, is super ungentlemanly. Like, there's having sat for hours in a cell with this guy. I mean, like he the letter he wrote me right before our visit was like, "You will you will come to the jail or to San Quentin. You will bring five dollars. You will buy me a coke and an ice cream sandwich." Like, no, no. And by the way, I did. I. I bought this murderer and rapist an ice cream sandwich and a Coke. And that was my like toll that I paid to get into this cell with him. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I mean, he didn't offer me, thankfully, any of his ice cream sandwich, but it wasn't like there was any sort of gentlemanliness whatsoever. <laughs> I feel like that's like, I don't know. I don't think I've read about any like modern day real serial killers who have that, that element to them. I'm thinking about Patrick Bateman too. And it's like Patrick Bateman, when he murders people is pretty indiscriminate and horrific. Um, But he is like this well-coiffed man who wears couture clothing and uses like $200 face wash. And it's true. He is refined in his own messed up serial killer way. I think it might have to do with separating them from normal people um while tying it to okay it's several things let me let me gather my thoughts so there's a actually a psychological concept about how we see beautiful people as all good things um so once this idea that serial killers were intelligent got into the zeitgeist then they must also be attractive um and attractive people are also refined and they're rich and all these things and on, like, what happens with that cycle of attaching things to beauty and intelligence and tying all these together is that goodness is also what we see when we put those things together. So we instinctively, um, unfortunately, but instinctively so, believe that beautiful people are intelligent, rich, and um, good. We like believe they're intrinsically good. So once you put these traits onto your fictionalized serial killers, people end up empathizing and putting flower crowds on them and, you know, fangirling them. And it's, it's, it's written that way. It's not, I, I don't think people who watch and fan these shows or these movies have to feel bad about it. It's, it's written to be experienced that way. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that connection that we make of beautiful people being all of these other good things. It's an interesting chicken and egg thing because I know when I started writing to the Trailside Killer, certainly some of the Shadowhunters writers were like, Zoe, is this some sort of a messed up romance? Like I said earlier, I said I went to visit him and it wasn't a sexy thing. But when I met him, he was telling me, and by the way, he's like 89 years old. He's super old. He uses a walker. Um, he was telling me all about his... Um, his, his girlfriend. And he said, Oh yeah, I have all these women who write me letters. My favorite one of them lives in San Francisco. We've had some visits. Like she, she's my girlfriend. Obviously Ted Bundy had tons of, tons of girlfriends, but I think like it's pretty common, right? To hear about women writing letters to serial killers. And I wonder what came first, the women writing to serial killers or the conception that serial killers are these beautiful people and sort of like untouchable and pure or if they evolve together i actually think those are two separate phenomenon so i think the obsession of some uh of some usually women with actual serial killers writing them romantic letters or trying to be in a romantic relationship with them while they're in jail i think that is a separate phenomenon um related to but separate from the phenomenon of the fictional serial killer and the archetype that people build up around them because i think that 
from some of what I've read and watched about women who have this fixation on real serial killers, um, they go at it from the angle of vulnerability and I can fix him and he's misunderstood. Whereas <laughs> he's the ultimate bad boy. The ultimate bad boy. Whereas in the fictionalized archetype, it's less vulnerable and misunderstood and more like more intelligent than the rest of society and outsmarting everybody. So there's a lot more agency to the fictionalized serial killer than to the idolatrized real serial killer. That's a lot of words that I can't pronounce. Um, But I think they're separate, related, but separate phenomenon. I have yet to encounter in my own research a Hannibal Lecter type killer who is so well studied. And so I don't even mean in terms of refinement, but in terms of the notion of like a disorganized versus an organized killer, I feel like most killers fall into the disorganized category. And I don't know. I mean, I'd be curious, Adrian, to hear your thoughts about, do you think Ted Bundy was organized or disorganized? I mean, he had a plan, right? But it wasn't such a good one. I think that within what those definitions are, and it's not my specialty, but I, as I understand them, he would fall under organized just because there was a plan and there was a a very specific type of person he was um, targeting. Whereas, and this might be wrong, but I believe disorganized are much more opportunistic and erratic in the manner that they commit the crimes. Um, It's less thought out and calculated. That being said, it's not as calculated as it's in the movies. It's not as like, I have this perfect plan and I know she'll be here at this time because I have been following her schedule. I mean, yeah, they're stalking, but it's not that specific and it's not that perfect a plan. It's just, I kind of have this idea of how I'm going to do it. I'm the kind of person I'm going to attack and it's not that complex. Yeah, the tra- oh, whoa. Um, the Trailside Killer was totally opportunistic and his whole thing. And the reason I'm obsessed with him, by the way, is he murdered a bunch of women runners in my hometown. And I run a lot. I run on trails and this guy pretty much would just camp out with a gun and lay and wait. And he'd wait for a runner who he liked the looks of to run by. It was pretty wild because I grew up in a really small town and he, a super safe town. Um, And he would just hang out on the trails during the day and wait for a young woman he liked. Mostly they were women in their 20s. Um, And he would hop out and he'd hold them at gunpoint and he would sort of take them off the trail. And that was that. Um, But there wasn't a lot of thought put into it. Eventually he ended up getting caught because certain women were people he knew, were people he had connections to. He had one jam where he was trying to murder one woman and another woman came along and he had to kill them both. It was a lot of things where, like, his plan wasn't very good. And I think even Ted Bundy, like, he he did the arm thing, obviously, but he put his arm in a cast and said, oh, I need help. So I do think he was organized, but there were tons of witnesses around. I mean, people were able to describe him so well they got a composite sketch. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel like the brilliance of Hannibal Lecter fan of Law and Order SVU and they had a killer on there and I, I used to I used to watch that show a lot and they even you know had killers that had this really high refined level of like like they were playing a game with the cops and it was a very complex thing but it sounds like even in the case in real life where there are serial killers that are organized or they're somewhat planned they're not um sophisticated in the way that we are used to seeing them in media where like, you know, we see them depicted as like leaving a puzzle for their favorite detective. As a side note, I have now done research or experienced two different serial killers who ended up getting nabbed because they had some sort of like a license plate registration issue. The first is Ted Bundy. And the second one is Joel the Ripper in I think Long Island, a couple of like in the early 2000s. Um, but the fact that these guys are murdering people and using their cars and wouldn't think to like, as they're transporting bodies around in their cars, like do something to me, it seems like if we're talking about intelligence, it's super dumb that you're using your car for a crime and you have like an obvious red flag, like a, like a registration in need of renewal that could cause the cops to pull you over. Like that's all I'm saying is Hannibal Lecter never had an expired registration. 
can I say too, uh, one thing too that we were we were talking about a bit beforehand um, was I mentioned about how I forgot what I was talking about, but I was talking about um, how socio killers are sociopaths, and you said that they're not they aren't all sociopaths, right? Like they're not all. And I think I'd love to just kind of like go into a little bit about that, like what exactly, like what's wrong with them, you know. I've spent so much time, by the way, thinking about and trying to figure out for myself whether the trailside killer is a sociopath. And I still go back and forth on it because he has never admit to committing these crimes. I feel like he knows and deep down is very ashamed of them and ashamed to admit it. And I feel like if you have a sense of shame about the crimes, that to me suggests some sort of a moral conscience there. And supposedly he also would go into this kind of a fugue state. It was really interesting. He had a terrible stutter, like I mentioned, and his stutter supposedly would totally go away when he was committing these crimes. Um, And a few of his victims who lived recalled him at the very end apologizing and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry I had to. And that, to me, feels very different than, like, the pa- the Patrick Bateman, American Psycho, this is fun version of a serial killer who's just murdering and loving it. Do you think, do you think serial killers are, and I have not done any research on this and I am just flying blind here, are they more prevalent now in modern society or is it just that we have caught them more and that we're aware of them more? Like, were people in, like, ye old Polonius... Like in the in Greek ancient Greece, where people picking off people and just not getting caught, or do you think that it's something that has sprung up about? There's a lot of aspects of modern life that leave people with mental illnesses um, behind in a lot of ways, in in some pretty marked ways. And not saying that that it necessarily made them this way, but there's a lot of ways that modern life is just weird. It's super weird. It's very unnatural. It doesn't support us in the ways that we need it to support us. And I'm just wondering if it's something that has has popped up. Um, and I've noticed it feels like there was like a boom, quote unquote, in uh, in serial killing in like the late 70s through the 80s because that was like the time of the Zodiac Killer. That was when my guy, the Trailside Killer, was around. And there wasn't DNA. Like you couldn't really test DNA in the same way. So I feel like it was easier, quote unquote, easier to be a serial killer then because, and and it it was just like less foolhardy because there was less of a way to get caught. Um, I, I kind of feel like today, unfortunately, the serial killer has been replaced with a mass shooter. And that's become a way for people to get their aggression out um, and where some of these mental health issues manifest themselves. But I feel like you don't hear so much about serial killers today, possibly also because it's easier for, for police or detectives to catch people after committing just one murder because modern crime is more of or modern crime solving is more evolved. I'm sure they still exist, but I I would imagine there's less with less prevalence. So part of it, I think, is not only just that the crimes aren't being committed because there's more fear of getting caught, but there's less opportunity because of the very inset. I don't know if you would call it paranoia, if it's actually kind of pretty valid. Um, There's a lot of awareness that this can happen. So you have a lot of people um, being more cautious in general. But there's also a lot of things about how the U.S. specifically, which is where the majority of serial killers are from, is there's there used to be, I guess, more independence or more um, lack of communication because of several things, because Younger people who by far are, I think, the majority of victims, younger people weren't, you know, checking in with their parents every so often. There wasn't what so much of what we now call an emerging adult, which is a young person that is still very connected to their family, to put it in a very simple way. That's really interesting. So people would go away from home. People would go away from home. There would be a state away or another town and not communicate with their family for several weeks. And that would be normal or maybe call once a week and that would be fine. You didn't have people texting back and forth every day. Like now, if you don't text your mom back in 15 minutes, she thinks you're dead in a ditch. 
My mom calls me every Sunday. She's worried I've been murdered. Yeah, every single Sunday. It's like my mom... My mom is calling me, hey, how was your Saturday night? Did you get killed? No, I'm still here. Exactly. But you didn't have that, you know, in the 70s and 80s. You had people out without communication with their family or their friends for several days at a time, and it was normal. And so it was much easier to get away with these kinds of murders. And there was a lot more of the, like, there was a lot more hitchhiking. There wasn't the knowledge that all of these really casual, independent movements could put you in danger. And there wasn't you know, phones, which are basically constant tracking devices that we have. It's it's hard for somebody to disappear now. It's harder for somebody to disappear now, not impossible. Um, such a, um, such a trope of the serial killer genre too. And it's so real. Like the final victim of the trailside killer was someone who he had this young female student and he had progressed to killing people he knew. And he was like, let me give you a ride. And she was like, oh, okay, that sounds good. And of course she never she never made it out alive. It's, yeah, I do feel, and, and of course, like if she had a cell phone, maybe things would have been different. But so I think one thing though, that like, yeah, it's definitely, it's harder to commit them now, but I guess I'm wondering, I'm still thinking, okay, 300 years ago, you are a serial killer in your bones. What do you do with that energy? What were people doing with it before then? A lot more war. Ah, yeah, there's a lot more institutionalization of who and how people can kill in military settings that didn't used to exist. You used to just go to war and be as bloodthirsty as you wanted to be. And that's just not a thing anymore. Um, Things are a lot more distant. Guns make a difference. So that's a lot of where that like murderous aggression would used to go out 300, 500 years ago. I think it's really interesting especially because um a lot of the serial killers who I have studied or experienced are people who don't like I said like don't really fit into pleasant society exactly like they just can't crack it like I know the trailside killer I said to him like because he had been in and out of institutions his entire life and I said to him when I visited him in San Quentin how do you like it here and I figured he'd be like oh it's you know I'm on death row it's not so hot But he was like, oh, no, I love it. I'm very happy here. And I do think that that a lot of serial killers are people who who couldn't really hold a nine to five job or go to a happy hour with friends. And you're right that war isn't quite like that. War is a totally different environment where there are less rules. I um I was trying to think too. I think trying to bring it back to kind of the actual obsession with it, like why why people want to tap into that. I do wonder. So you mentioned that there was opportunities more for for war and expressing that, and we actually did touch on this a little bit in our scary stories episode. But that I wonder if the obsession with serial killers is about exploring. I'm trying to think about how I can word this in a way that is um. <laughs> doesn't sound creepy but i wonder if if some of the obsession in media it's just again it's it's so oversaturated with serial killers we're so into that idea i wonder how much of it is that we have this sort of like animal part of our brain that we are we realize is like that it's potential that we sort of fight against that we don't have a way of exercising in modern life in any way and that people like to sort of look at how and like study clinically like from a safe distance, how other people might be manifesting that and manifesting this kind of weird rebellion. I'm not saying that that I don't think people's natural form is serial killers. I'm not at all saying that, but I'm saying that I wonder if that we know that there's this sort of weird violence that can pop up within us um, that is potential uh, and that uh, that is something that we kind of are, we want to keep an eye on it, like like observe it and observe it and examine it from multiple perspectives so that we can sort of be like, oh, whew, okay, that's not me. Like, I am not I am not that animal capable of that, but I need to be able to examine it from all of those angles because we sort of know in our back background brain that that's something that's possible. There's, um, sorry, go ahead, Zoe. Oh, I was going to say, I would guess too, I'm not a mother and I'm not considering motherhood anytime soon. But I think there's something interesting to the fact that most serial killers, or at least a large number of serial killers, are have had some sort of form of childhood trauma. I feel like there's also something to learn there about like like what went wrong. How can we prevent this? Like if if I'm going to bring someone into the world, 
And especially, I feel like you always hear about like a serial killer with a nice family, like Ted Bundy's parents, super lovely. I mean, I don't, I don't know them personally, but supposedly. Um, and it's like, what went wrong? What can we do to steer our the course of our own small universes somewhere different? Like, how can we make sure this doesn't happen to us? It's almost um, like disaster prevention. Right. And I think, so it's definitely that. I think it's definitely watching something as a how not to or what not to do guide. But there's also, like we were talking about before, um, and Brie was mentioning the idea of saying, oh, well, I have violent thoughts sometimes, but I, I'm not like that. So I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not going to be a serial killer. Um, there's a show called The Bridge. I don't know if you've ever watched it. It's about um, it's about the Mexican-U.S. border and drug trafficking and all that sort of stuff. Um, so there's a, there's a scene that we always talk about in my family where the the head of the drug cartel is saying, "What's a serial killer? I'm not familiar with that concept." Because in Mexico there aren't a lot of serial killers. Like there are obviously, but it's not like as common as in the U.S. Um, I think I'm not familiar with the concept. And one of his lackeys is saying, oh, it's someone who kills a lot of people. And he says, well, I kill a lot of people. Am I a serial killer? And his lackey says, oh, no, boss. Serial killers enjoy it. And and the cartel guy goes, oh, okay, well, I'm not a serial killer then because it's just business. I don't enjoy it. So <laughs> that's like even, even a person who casually murders people all the time finds this separation between themselves and somebody who enjoys the act of murdering someone. So it's really interesting. Bree and I were actually kind of talking about that in our um, our pre-show um, because when I went to death row, I encountered a bunch of different interesting people and a few of them um, spoke to me and struck up conversations with me, like prisoners in cells as I was walking to, by the way, the way it actually worked on death row, just to give you guys like a quick snapshot of so, so you go through like all of these. Have, have either of you guys ever visited a prison before? Um, no, no, I have not. So you, go, <laughs> no, no, I have not. so you go through an enormous amount of security. There's certain things you can and cannot wear. Like the first, the first, my first day I went, I made the mistake of wearing blue jeans. And I was told you can't wear blue because the prisoners wear blue. And I was like, well, fuck, what do I do? And so they gave me these random like prison they weren't prison uniforms, but it was like these random trousers that they like dug up in the back of San Quentin somewhere. And I wore those to meet with the trailside killer. Um, so you go through that. They made me take out the underwear of my bra. I had to cut out the underwear of my bra in a bathroom. I was like, can I just take my bra? They were like, no, definitely don't take your bra. Um, it just hadn't occurred to me that it would be an issue. But yeah, they gave me like a pair of like childproof scissors to cut my bra out. Um, and then because I was going to death row, um, first of all, the San Quentin campus is amazing. It's like the best college campus you could ever visit. Like if I were touring a college there, I'd be like, this is the place. It's so beautiful. You overlook the entire bay. You can see the Bay Bridge. It's really wild. Um, but so then I, so then you get to like the death row area and there's a special screening. Um, and then there's, and then once you get into the death row visitation area, there's all of these prisoners in cages, sort of a la Silence of the Lambs. And of course, in my own personal Silence of the Lambs narrative, my prisoner was in the furthest cage. So I had to walk by everyone else who was receiving visits. Um, but it wasn't scary. It was really sad. A lot of people had like family, like young children visiting them. Um, anyway, this is a very long way to explain that when I got back from San Quentin, I was really interested in these other prisoners who I had seen in these visitation cells. And so I, of course, like being creepy, got onto my Google and looked up like the pictures of all the San Quentin inmates and tried to figure out like who these guys were and what they had done. Um, and most of them, as it turned out, were gang members who had, some of them were like white supremacists, some of them, I don't know, various gangs. Um, but people who had killed a bunch of people through gang violence. and. It's interesting because certain I found that certain sites about these people define them as quote unquote serial killers, but I don't think I personally would define gang members as serial killers. To me, like you were saying, Adri, it's more it's business. It's not um or you know, just circumstances that you've unfortunately gotten involved in. But I think there's the lack of it's like a lack of bloodlust or pleasure. It's it's just like what you have to do. It's circumstances more so than need. 
really, really interesting way to look at it and the way the the distinction of it, um, element of enjoyment <clears throat> in in the killing. So whether or not whenever we've seen it depicted as fictional, like they, they 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 needed it. It was something that it, it like gave them something that they were missing. Um, and it was it was for fun, like for, for, for lack of a better word, it was it was simply just done for fun. It wasn't done for any there was no real reason to commit this murder like same like your quote-unquote serial killer like there was no reason for it right he didn't have a he, he wasn't feeling threatened it wasn't for a job it wasn't these women meant nothing to him women meant nothing to him i would argue for my serial killer it was it was a need and they're like if you track his murders you would you would see very specific instances and in where in which he was getting angrier and angrier and he was feeling more and more helpless and it built up so much so that it was like he was going to explode unless he had an outlet to release it. And then after he murdered these women, he would go back to work and he would have like a really productive period where he would be able to be calm and be okay. Um, but it was like an explosive release. Um, and maybe that's a different distinction between different types of killers is like the fun versus the need. Um, but it definitely wasn't like a business as usual thing for him. All right. So we have spent quite a lot of time talking so far about uh, kind of the inner workings of serial killers and our thoughts about them. Uh, I want to take a quick detour as I kind of had mentioned earlier. I want us to each go through and talk about our favorites. Uh, it, it can be fictional or they can be a real serial killer depicted fictionally. I'd like us to each kind of go through and talk about our our favorite one. So who who wants to go first? The fictional serial killer that I find most entertaining, I guess, is uh, Kira or Light from Death Note. And that sounds like I'm really into anime, but it is the only anime I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> I promise. Um, Wait, so I don't know Death Note. Tell me about your killer. I will tell you. Um, the, the basic concept of the show is that this kid, this high school student, finds this magical notebook where if you write someone's name down, they immediately die, which is a lot of power to give a teenage boy. Um, and he's kind of a very arrogant teenage boy. So it's not a great combination. And so what I find interesting is that he believes himself a hero the entire time because the people that he's choosing to kill are very high powered, evil people. And for a while, um, you can kind of see, like, this is a very idealistic way to go about serial murder. And then, of course, it gets, uh, not only gets to his head, but he starts getting rid of people that get in his way, in his noble mission. But it's it, it very much kind of lines up with what we're talking about, somebody that is very intelligent and is also the hero of their own story. So it's somebody that the audience is meant to empathize with. And I think that all lines up with what we were talking about before. Um, and I also like it in the context of this conversation we're having, because in that show, he definitely gathers a cult of fans of people who think that what he's doing is correct, which is not something that happens, um, in real life with real life serial killers, but definitely happens with fans of fictional serial killers. So it was interesting that in this show, it was kind of like, in the universe of this show, the fans were very open about how, like, we think what he's doing is right, and, like, I'm gonna fangirl him and draw pictures about him and things like that. So that's my trick in my I one venture into love that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I, uh, I have actually, I've only seen part of, uh, I've part of, only seen part of Death Note, but anything I've seen I thought was really fascinating and seemed to explore a lot of, kind of, m moral issues and things like that. Um, now I want to so see it. Yeah, yeah, I really want to see. What, what is? Who is your favorite? Uh, either it can be a real serial killer depiction depicted fictionally, so like Zephron playing Ted Bundy, or it can be a Zephron. totally fictional serial killer. Uh, uh, who's your favorite? Um, you know, it's a close race between two who we've discussed this episode between Patrick Bateman and Hannibal Lecter. And I'm going to have to say at the end of the day, and it may come as no surprise because I named my cat after him, but it's Hannibal Lecter. And there's a couple of reasons why I think he, we've talked so much today about 
the intelligent serial killer and how that's sort of a myth. And it probably largely started with Hannibal Lecter. And we talked about the refined serial killer. And I think he has all of that. And I think he's also funny. And we see him in contrast to, I don't know if you guys remember the like sort of pompous prison guard who thinks he's smarter than Hannibal Lecter and he's a little sassy to Jodie Foster when she comes in and tries to visit with Hannibal Lecter. He's a little like gropey with Jodie Foster. Man, we hate that guy. And Hannibal Lecter totally gets the better of him. Um, and I think he's written to be kind of funny. I know it's not in the book, it's in the movie, but at the end when he says, I'm having an old friend for dinner, I don't know if you guys remember that line, but um, I think he's meant to be funny. And he, to me, feels extremely likable. Um, and yeah, and, and refined. And it makes you sort of think about the psychology of someone who, who is this way. I feel like he elevates all serial killers. Do you think that also translates to the show? Because I think you're talking about the movie and the book, but does that also translate? Did you watch the show? I've never seen the show, and it's probably a great quarantine project for me. I have. Oh my god! Wait, you haven't it. seen Hannibal? I I have been meaning to watch Hannibal, um, just because I know so many people just got so so into it, and it was really good. That's fascinating because you, your cat is named Hannibal Lecter, isn't it? My cat is named Hannibal Lecter, and I love the book, which, by the way, the book is, like, almost a one-to-one -one blueprint for the movie. But the one thing that's not in the book is the I'm having an old friend for dinner line, which really, for me, quite makes the movie. There's nothing like seeing Hannibal Lecter in that little sun hat riding off into the sunset in Mexico, um, phoning his old pal Clarice Sterling. But, yeah, I really need to watch the show Hannibal. I actually – I grew up in a no-cable household – so I have big gaps in my television knowledge that quarantine is really helping me fill, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, who are your favorites, Brie? Um, I, okay, so it's either Dexter because one of the things that, okay, so I have, I have two. I love Dexter because I love the kind of this ideal of it, of him having sort of this like moral code because he, he's sort of, um, especially in the beginning, it's really just strictly, um, at least as they're presented in the narrative, people who kind of deserve it, people who are slipping through the cracks of the justice system that he is unable to nab through the legal means. So he sort of takes care of things on his own, own means. So it's like the, the, the idea of this sort of serial killer with a, not a heart of gold, but a, a serial killer with a, a very strong moral compass, even though he is like a sociopath, like he doesn't actually feel the kind of emotions or remorse. He sort of channeled his energy into and to, to doing these things. Um, but I think the the other one is, and this one is uh, arguable, and I'd love to kind of open this up for discussion, is Barry from HBO's Barry. Um, he is played by Bill Hader. If you haven't watched the show, please do yourself a favor and check it out. Um, he it's is great. A it's a great one. <laughs> so on one sense, yes, that's, that's not a technically a serial killer, I would say, because he is being paid and hired for a very specific job. However, within the context of the show, Barry, he has committed several murders uh, that he deems necessary to protect himself or people he cares about. Um, he kills his friends. He heals a cop who's like the girlfriend of his mentor. He does kill a few people that are not... Uh, that are not contract hires that are clearly by the way whoa contract. spoilers Bree. what spoilers oh oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> big berry spoilers <laughs> sorry okay i'm sorry guys uh <laughs> but i uh, i look i'm gonna just give you a heads up if you're gonna watch barry uh he's gonna kill people uh that's the show <laughs> you're gonna watch bill Hader uh look um inexplicably sexy killing people it's a really i have very weird feelings when i watch that show because i'm like i am attracted to bill Hader. this is a very odd feeling so do we have kind of a consensus because you know we love to sell the world on this on this show um do we have a consensus about why people are obsessed with serial killers hmm. i think um just I think one of the aspects is that we are afraid of becoming their victims or we're afraid of becoming them. So I think that it ties into, um, you know, AJ, maybe you can go in a little bit more about the psychology of this, but I think that at its heart, it's just this idea that we like to really, we can't 
maybe I think as people we can comprehend one murder and in crime of passion that seems like something that we can maybe understand or comprehend serial killers when they commit murders on you know they, they commit multiple murders the idea is that it's it's harder I think for us to get into that mindset and so I think when the obsession comes from us really trying to put ourselves in their shoes and figure out like why 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 could they do this what could drive somebody to not only murder once but mur murder multiple times so i i think the obsession comes from this idea of us really trying to kind of examine through a closer lens um what it is that makes someone become a serial killer so that we can draw a distinction between us and them i think it's also human nature to be fascinated by the inexplicable and there are ways of explaining serial killers and we have offered some explanations today, but still I think even the explanations feel a little intangible. And I think that it feels almost um, like mythical, like the notion of a person who wants the blood of other people. And I think that's really interesting for the human mind to sort of like parse and piece out is, is what what is this giant question that is these people who want to kill other people? It feels so inhuman but they are humans and I think that's a big question for people to chew on so yeah and I think that we all kind of touched on it and we mentioned it before I think the biggest one of the biggest drives is the ability to pinpoint what is wrong with this person and what specifically makes them a monster and not like me or anybody that I know. It's this uh, feeling that we feel a little bit safer knowing, oh, this person had this very particular childhood trauma or this issue in their brain or what have you. Like this, There's one thing that I can say is wrong with them that isn't wrong with me or anybody in my life. And that makes us safe from becoming this person. I would hazard, I this is totally opinion-based, that the fear of becoming like them is greater than the fear of becoming their victim because many things can kill us and people can kill us without being serial killers. But the idea of becoming like that, I think is more terrifying. I think it might be different for different people. I know that I am so terrified of becoming a victim. I For whatever reason, like since I was a kid, I've been so terrified of being especially kidnapped, by the way, but like kidnapped and murdered. And I, I bet it's different for different people. I bet there are different draws to this serial killer phenomenon for different viewers, researchers, readers, whatever, what have you. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of funny. I had this, I, I actually meant to bring this up during our scary story podcast, but um, I think we ended up just uh, not touching on it, but um, I used to have this thing, you know, when I would watch scary stories as a kid, I would get really frightened of, like, I'd watch a vampire movie and I'd be really afraid that I'd become a victim of vampires. Or I'd watch a werewolf movie and I'd be afraid I'd become a victim of werewolves. Uh, and I think in that same way, like, I may watch a true crime documentary or, a, you know, a, a, a TV show about serial killers and worry that I might become a victim of serial killers. But I used to tell myself something when I was a kid, I was like probably six or seven, where I would be like, um, it would be highly unlikely for a vampire to pick the day that I watched a movie about vampires to come and attack me. <laughs> and the same thing with like, like serial killers, like why would a serial killer pick the day that I watched a movie about serial killers to come and hunt me down? That would be so statistically unlikely. So in some senses, like I'm sort of protecting myself by being very aware of them because I'm like, like, of course, like a serial killer is not going to take me out after I watched a whole documentary on serial killers. Like, what are the so do we think the moral of this story is that you should watch like one serial killer doc a day keeps the serial killer away? Yeah, yeah, you should keep <laughs> we certainly have the time and Netflix capability to do so now. It's it's funny, though, Brie, that you said that, because when I was younger, I used to say, because well, I like horror movies. And I would say, well, if it's been made into a movie, it'll never happen in real life. And that does not work with serial killers. Yeah, serial killers are real life monsters. They're like really the number one source of real life monsters we have. It's definitely also statistically unlikely for anyone who's listening and feeling afraid that you're going to get murdered by a serial killer. But it is more statistically likely than getting eaten by a zombie. <laughs> 
That's uh... I'm in Florida, <laughs> so they are maybe a little bit more equally likely than in other places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Florida, anything goes. I can't speak to Florida rules. <laughs> Adri coming at us from the zombie capital somehow of uh, <laughs> the zombie capital of the earth. Okay, well, thank you for listening to this episode of What's the Obsession With? As we're trying to get to the bottom of the who, what, where, why, and when of serial killers. Uh, if you would like to share your thoughts with us, you can find us on Twitter at the Obsession Pod and hashtag the Obsession Pod. Actually... And thank you, Zoe, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys, and listening to me rattle on about serial killers. This has been a blast. Bye.